As Ken said, my wife and I have been a little under the weather this past week, actually two weeks, and uh, just had a cold and trying to get over that and uh, woke up Thanksgiving morning with vertigo, so you don't want to fly with vertigo, so I'm praying that it passes, but uh, it's not too bad this morning, so we'll be praying that it stays that way <laughs> for the next couple of weeks anyway. But um, we're excited to head out. We're going to have to leave right after church. Um, we're going to be heading over to uh, India and uh, meeting with um, Helena and the, the folks there. We're going to meet Theo in uh, New Delhi first. And uh, we get in at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning on Tuesday. So we will head to the hotel and then uh, Theo will uh, pick us up in the morning sometime. And uh, I'll go teach some uh, guys over at the seminary a couple classes and then uh, hopefully we'll head back to the hotel and get some rest. <laughs> and then the next morning, on Wednesday morning, we head out and fly over to uh, Derridoon. And then Thursday, Friday, Saturday is just um, constant. Um, it's a conference we're doing for pastors there. And so I'm teaching the pastors. My wife is teaching some of the pastors' wives and the women there. And we're taking them through the first couple chapters of the fundamentals of the faith, which we have been through as a church and it just covers some basic uh, theological fundamentals that you need. And I thought it would be good for them to understand this. And so we had a lot of the material already translated into their language. And uh, so they'll have some uh, materials that we can leave with them as well. But we're looking forward to that. And we just uh, cover your prayers. And I think we'll have a prayer time at the end of the service as well. But today we're in our... Uh, message back in 1 Corinthians, and this will most likely be the last message before, the, before January in Corinthians, just because Christmas is coming up, and uh, Dave Bullen's going to be teaching on the 2nd about the uh, birth of Christ foretold, and then we will follow that up with a couple other Christmas messages, and then we'll get back into Corinthians after the first of the year. But we're trying to finish chapter, or verse 3 here, so <laughs> we're going to get to it today. But anyway... Uh, you know, sometimes you have to lay a good foundation, in other words, for a book study, and we've been doing that for several weeks now, but it's important that we, we do that and we do it in a way that is uh, effective for everybody. I forgot my iPad here. But as we look at, at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 today, um, if you've missed the other messages, then you can go ahead and get those. Uh, in the back or even on the uh, on the website, and uh, we can uh, you can catch up. You're only nine messages behind, but you can catch up. So, well, let me read the first three chapter three verses, and then uh, we'll we'll look at uh, continue our study from last week. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, and our brother Sothenus. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we've been studying about the calling of salvation. And uh, just a little bit of review We've looked at the idea of the call of the general call of salvation, which goes out to all, which we find in the Gospels. We call it the external call. Uh, it's the proclamation of the gospel that we are told to proclaim to every creature. And uh, we, we looked at that in depth, and we noticed a couple things about that, that call. We said, first and foremost, that it, it was a, uh, the, the general call was a, a call that was necessary. You have to have an external call if people are going to get saved. You don't just wake up in the middle of the night and go, wow, I think I just want to be a Christian without ever hearing the gospel. The Bible says that it's, it's the words of Christ that are able to save our souls and so whenever in the New Testament epistles it speaks of a calling in the epistles, in the letters, everything other than the Gospels, it's always referring to the effectual call, not 
the general call. The general call is found in the Gospels. That's when Jesus says um, uh, that, that, that sometimes you have a call that goes out, but there's only so many chosen out of that call. And so we looked at, at several things about the general call that it was necessary. Without it, you cannot be saved. And, and I don't mean you have to have a preacher preaching this. You could be reading your Bible and receive a general call, right? Because it, it comes through the words of Christ. But you have to have some form of the words of Christ in order to have a legitimate external call, a proclamation of the gospel. And so sometimes you hear of people that just, you know, just out of the blue, they, they say that, um, God saved them, and you say, well, what happened? And Well, I don't know. I just got saved. Well, th- that's kind of questionable because if they don't understand the gospel, how can they be saved? You can't be saved outside of the gospel of Christ. And so the elements of that external call were God's holiness, man's sinfulness, the work of Christ. You have to communicate that. The earnest call for the sinner to believe and repent, and then also the promise of forgiveness of sins, and eternal life. And we said that it was a universal call. It goes out to everybody. That it was a bona fide offer. Even though the, the third characteristic of the external call is that it is not efficacious. In other words, the external call in and of itself, it doesn't save anybody. Unlike the effectual call, which we've been, we started looking at last week. The effectual call is that call that God is summoned irresistibly by God to spiritual life from spiritual deadness. And Jesus makes that distinction in Matthew 22, verse 14. He says, for many are, what, called, but few are chosen. So he makes the distinguishment between the general call, which goes out to everybody, and the effectual call, the call of God that saves. And so we started looking at that call last week. We looked at the internal call. We called it regeneration or the effectual call. See, as, as unbelievers, we need the sovereign effectual call of God. There's no way we will be saved without it. Because we have to overcome somehow the effects of depravity upon us. We have to bring about repentance. We have to bring about saving faith. That doesn't just come from within us. It's that effectual call of God that arrests us. That that call of God that draws us to himself. That draws us to saving faith. See, if you only hear the external call, if you only hear a preacher preaching the gospel, that's not... Enough to save you. Just hearing those words. That's not going to save you. As a matter of fact, you can hear that message and even feel conviction of the Holy Spirit upon your life because of your sinful state. That in and of itself is not enough to save you. There's been so many people who've heard the gospel call. They've been convicted. But what do they do? They turn away. They don't want that conviction. They want to stay in their sin. They don't want the Savior. Why? Because they're lost. That's the state of their being. The only way to get from point A, the point where we are held by a personal devil in the bounds and chains of our sin, spiritually dead, caught in our trespasses, the only way to get from there to point B, spiritual life, resurrected life in Christ, belief in Christ, being alive in Christ, is for the infinitely powerful God to draw us, to call us, to literally drag us, as it were, out of the world and into a relationship with Christ. You will not come to Christ any other way, trust me. Because in our natural state, Ephesians 2.1 says that we are characterized by spiritually being dead. We are dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. So we are a spiritual corpse. The last time 
that you had occasion to look at a corpse, you probably didn't see any movement. Because it was dead. A corpse is just that. It's lacking life. It's entirely unresponsive to the spiritual truth proclaimed in the external call of the gospel. That's how we are declared. We're declared spiritually dead. We couldn't respond if we wanted to without God's effectual call upon our lives. See, that's why it's so important we understand this because when you begin to understand that, that if it wasn't for God, there's no way I would ever be saved. What does that cause you to do? It causes you to drop to your knees and thank God for his gracious gift of salvation upon you. But then it also causes you not to be so judgmental and look down your spiritual noses at other people who have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. Because you realize that's not something they can do. It's something that God needs to do for them. That's why the natural man will always reject the gospel. I should say this. The natural man will always reject the biblical gospel. Because there's a lot of gospels going around today that are not what Jesus says the gospel was. You know, there's, there's gospels out there that, you know, teach, well, you can just have your best life now. That's the gospel. Just tap into your inner consciousness and just, you know, do away with all the guilt and believe that you are somebody. That's a gospel. These things are floating around out there. And they permeated the church to the, the point when, to the degree where people hear the real gospel, the point that we are dead in our trespasses and sin, and we need God's gift of salvation to cause us to repent and believe in him. And there's nothing in and of ourselves we can do about it. We have to literally cry out to God like the man in the New, New Testament who stood on the corner and, and basically said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all he could say. He couldn't say anything else. He wasn't like the Pharisee who was all dressed up and out there in his boisterous voice proclaiming his righteousness before mankind. God looked down on him. So we need to come to the end of ourselves because sin has so pervaded us that everything about us is corrupt. Now, I get it. We don't like to think of ourselves that way. You know, it's not like you wake up Monday morning and go, man, I'm just so glad I'm such a sinner. I'm so corrupted. We don't like to think that. We like to think, well, we're okay. We're pretty good. We're better than our neighbor. We're, We're better than this person. But see, that's not the standard. The standard is God, and God is perfect. And so when we come to a proper understanding of who we are outside of Christ, then we can have a proper understanding of who we are in Christ. See, we don't need more self-esteem taught. We don't need to feel good about ourselves. That's what the world wants us to believe. Why do you think they sell us all this stuff? You know, they sell us clothes, they sell us makeup, they sell us hair products, all this stuff. Why? So you can feel better about yourself. That's the goal. See, and, and when you come down to it, all of that really doesn't matter in the end. In the end, the only thing that matters is the fact that, you know what? You understand that you're lost and you're on your way to hell and you cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, I've been to several occasions where tragedy has struck a family, whether it's an automobile accident or something like that as a chaplain. And you go out to the scene and everything's in disarray. And sometimes the people who were in the accident are still there. And they've just been through a traumatic experience. Sometimes they're on a stretcher. And as many years as I've been doing that, I've never had one of them look up from the stretcher or come out of the, the traumatizing experience of an accident and go, oh, do you have a mirror? I gotta, I gotta put on some makeup. I mean, there's people here. What are people gonna think? They're not concerned about that at all. They're just thankful to what? Be alive. They're thankful that, boy, thank God I'm still breathing. 
You know, their hair's all messed up. They got blood all over them. They don't care. They really don't care. See, and that's the point that we have to understand is that we have to understand that that's where we're at in crisis mode. That we are so lost in our sin that we need to understand that the only way out of that is through Christ. Well, last week we looked at the author of regeneration. That it was God and God alone who saves us. He's the architect. He's the origin. He's the source. We said that we are saved by God, by his grace, from God, from his wrath, for God, for God's glory. And we mentioned that regeneration is, is entirely dominated by God. Regeneration meaning the idea that God saves you, that God regenerates who you are. We're going to be talking about that this morning. In regeneration, man is entirely passive. God is the sole active agent bringing about the creative miracle of that new birth. And because we're so corrupted by our sin, we can rearrange our lives all we want. We can modify our behavior all we want. We can go to, you know, religious performances, all those things. It's not going to help because it's so drastic and so irreversibly wrong, our sinful state, that we have to just be done away with and started over anew. And that's where we get the biblical terminology that Jesus uses with Nicodemus saying you have to be born again. You can't just clean yourself up. You have to be a whole new person in Christ. And he talks about that. You're not born again by blood. You're not, it's not passed down because your parents were Christians. Now you're a Christian. It doesn't work that way. We're all held, each one, to account. Neither are we born of the will of the flesh. John says that anything, the flesh can only give birth to flesh. He finally says in John 1.13 that the child of God is not born of the will of man. In other words, there's, not any, there's no man-made religion that can cause you to be born again. There's no man-made sacramental system that will suffice. It won't work. It will leave you with weights in the balance. Children of God are born of God. Well, today we look at the nature of regeneration. This term, regeneration, is kind of interesting because it only happens twice in the New Testament. Can you believe it? Just twice, the Greek word. you think it would happen a lot more. What's interesting is the first time in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he's talking about the Son of Man and him coming on the throne. And it says, truly I say to you, in the new world, that phrase is in the new regeneration, you could say, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus uses this word, regeneration, to refer to the renovation of the entire creation that will begin at the millennial kingdom. And it will finally happen when all the the new heavens and new earth will be provided for us. That's what's funny. You think about, you know, we got to preserve the earth. we got to preserve the earth. I mean, we should be good stewards of the earth. Don't get me wrong. You know, we we shouldn't go out and, and abuse it. It's God's creation. But at the same time, it's not going to be around much longer. It will be burnt up. Trust me. The Bible says that. It will be provided with a brand new earth, a brand new heaven, it says. What a, what a glorious thing to look forward to. That's the one place. It talks about regeneration in the new world. The word is in the regeneration. Well, the second place is in Titus chapter 3, 5. And here it relates more to our salvation, so we have a better understanding of it. He writes here to Titus, he saved us not because of works done in Titus 3, 5, by by us in righteousness. 
In other words, God saved us, but not because of our own works, but according to his own mercy. Then it says this, by the washing of regeneration. That's the word we want to look at and renewal of the Holy Spirit. See here, Paul uses that same term regeneration to speak about our salvation. He speaks about something that indicates that regeneration is characterized both by washing and renewing. That's what regeneration is. That's why it's called being born again. It's a new birth. In John 3, 5, Jesus uses the words born of water and the spirit. Now, when we look at this word regeneration, we can conclude that it speaks of a cleansing from sin and a creation of new spiritual life. It's both things. If God just wiped away our sin, but didn't cause us to be renewed spiritually, we'd still be stuck. (laughs) It's a purifying renovation. One commentator says at the most fundamental level, regeneration is the divine impartation of external spiritual life into the spiritually dead sinner. That's what regeneration is. So before Christ, what was your life? I was dead. I was dead in my sins. And now that Christ has saved you, he's brought you to himself, you understand the depravity of your sin and you've turned to him and you've, you've changed your mind, you've repented of those sins and you realize that your own righteousness won't save you, only Christ's righteousness and his sacrifice on the cross is able to save you, then God gives you with faith to believe in Christ's sacrifice for your sins and you become spiritually alive. He imparts spiritual life to you. You know, in the Bible, it gives a lot of different illustrations when it comes to regeneration or spiritual life. You think of the Valley of the Dry Bones. You know that story, right? When God, by his creative power, his creative word, he speaks spiritual life into, it's kind of a, an illustration into the dead hearts of the Jews, breathing, as it were, breath of divine life over those dry bones and making them alive again. That's what he does for us. See, and without that, we would be lost. If God did not do that on our behalf, we would be lost. We wouldn't figure it out. You remember Jesus in, in, in the Gospel of John when he's standing at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, who's been dead for four days now. You remember, he cries out with a loud voice, and he says what? Lazarus, come forth, right? And what happens? Comes out, comes stumbling out of the tomb, right? He's still got his his grave clothes on. But the man who had died was resurrected from the dead because of Christ's words. That's what happens Literally, spiritually, to a sinner when God regenerates them. He says, come forth from your sin. And all of a sudden, your eyes are open, your ears are open. All of a sudden, you comprehend the gospel. All of a sudden, wow, all this stuff begins to make sense. And God gives you the gift of faith and belief. And you trust in Christ as your Savior. Because... Without that call, we are left spiritually lifeless corpses who would never, ever respond to the general call of God unless God imparts life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul uses the same idea, speaking of salvation, and he says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness. When did God say that? Genesis, right? Creation. Let there be light. Wow. I mean, can you imagine? The world was filled with darkness. And God just says, let there be light. And boink, there's light. I mean, that is just amazing. Because of the power of his word. And Paul goes on, he says, 
The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts, look, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What's he saying? It's the same thing all over again. Instead of lighting up the whole world, what's he lighting up? He's lighting up your heart. He's lighting up your mind. He's calling into existence the things that do not exist, as Paul says in Romans 4.17, in your own life. In regeneration, here's what God does. Listen carefully. God unites the external call of the gospel, the gospel that goes forth to everybody, with his sovereign effectual call. And he imparts new life to the individual. That's what happens when someone is saved. Into that darkened and dead heart, he speaks the command, let there be light. And all of a sudden, wow, the lights go on. Instantaneously, spiritually, birth is given. And it wouldn't be given otherwise. Now, what's interesting, when you, when you talk of spiritual life, a lot of times we just think of the mystical, the immaterial part of man. Don't we? That's how we think. But really, it's recreating the whole person. If you think about the idea of being born again, you couldn't just have your arm born again or your big toe born again. What does that? It has the idea of your whole person being born again. That's why Paul can so boldly proclaim in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, If anyone has been awakened from the deadness of their sin to life in Christ and belief and faith and repentance to Christ, what does Paul say? He is a what? New creation. It doesn't say, well, just his spirit is, or just this part is. No, he is a new creation. And it even goes further. It says the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, God wants us to understand who we are in Christ. If we are truly a believer, then he has imparted to us new life. Completely, wholly. It's not merely the sinner's spirit or the sinner's soul that is part of this new creation, but he himself as a whole person. And I think we could probably go around the room if we wanted to take time and testify to that. Of who you were before you were a Christian. And now who you are. It's not that... You couldn't see the change. There should be change evident in the life of a believer. Why? Because they're a new person, a new creature in Christ. Think of it this way. Just as man's depravity is total and complete, there's not an ounce of goodness in us as sinners. Now, that's another doctrine that people have a lot of problem with, the depravity of man. They say, well, don't you think there's just a, you know, I mean, I I try to help people. It doesn't matter. Like I said, the standard is what? Perfection. You might be better than your neighbor, but you're not better than God. So therefore, you're imperfect. So therefore, you're lost. (laughs) Because only those who are perfect can be in God's presence. You say, well, then why are we in God's presence Because we are given the perfectness or the righteousness of who? Of Christ when we are saved. He gives that to us. And he takes upon himself all of our sin. And so just as man's depravity is complete and total, because it's been so infiltrated our nature... It doesn't leave any part of our nature untouched. See, we have to think of regeneration that way. Regeneration reaches the totality of man. The natural man's mind is blinded, 2 Corinthians 4.4 says. It says we're darkened in our understanding, Ephesians 4.18. We're unable to hear, John 8.43. We can't grasp spiritual truth. 1 Corinthians 2.14. Our affections, our desires are completely disordered to the degree. John chapter 3 verses 19 to 20 says that we love darkness and we, we hate 
being in the light as unbelievers. That's why it's so funny when, you know, you, you, you invite your non-Christian friends and you say, well, why don't you come to church? That's all right. And we go, well, I don't understand why they don't want to come. <laughs> because they're in darkness. They're in darkness. They don't, they don't want to be part of the light. They don't want to be under the conviction of God's word. That's not because they're a bad person. I mean, they may be a nice person. But they're lost in their sin. So that should cause us compassion. That should cause us to be filled with grace toward them, love toward them. They delight in what is objectively repulsive and being repulsed by that which is objectively delightful. In other words, someone who is not in Christ would actually refuse Christ if he was standing before him. He would refuse the glorious gospel of Christ. Hands down. But if Jesus was there personally, look at Jesus. Who was Jesus with in the New Testament? Look at all the religious leaders that Jesus tried to reach out to. What did they do? They persecuted him. They didn't want to hear anything about him. Why? Because they were in darkness. Jesus himself says, you don't understand my words because you're not of my father. Here are your father, the devil. So all the religious garb didn't make any difference. Mentally, emotionally, volitionally, as unbelievers, we are held captive to our sin. And so therefore, the the renewal or the regeneration of man has to be just as extensive as the depravity. And so when we are saved, the Spirit of God opens up our minds. It opens up our hearts. Look over at Acts chapter 26. Acts 26. It talks here of the conversion of Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, by the way. Acts 26. Look at verse 16. This is God's command to him. He says, but rise and stand up on your feet. Remember, he was stricken by the Lord there. He says, for I've appeared to you for this purpose. Okay. What's the purpose? To appoint you as a servant. Better yet, slave. And witness to the things in which you have seen me and uh, to those in which I will appear to you. Then it says in verse 17, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending to you. I am sending you, verse 18, to what? What's it say? To open their eyes. Well, why? So that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins in place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul himself is given direct command from the Lord. Here's why you need to do this. (laughs) Because they're not going to see it otherwise. You need to go to Corinth. And you need to share the message of the gospel with them. Well, why, Paul? So that their eyes will be opened. So that they can turn from darkness to light. From the power of Satan to God. That will not happen on their own. And I think sometimes in the church we believe that it will. Or possibly that it can. If somebody can just come to church long enough. If we can just start them young enough in the nursery. You know, reciting the mantras of of the Christian faith. That somehow, eventually, you know, they'll just be saved. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't instill in our, our children godly principles and verses and everything else. But I also have enough experience in ministry to be around people who have done all that. And then one day just clean walked away from everything. And they have verses they've memorized and been to church for years. They just walk away. How do you explain that? They were never saved. They were never converted. They were just 
playing church. See, playing church will not save you. It never has, it never will. The only thing that will save your sinful soul is you crying out to God in desperation, realizing there's no other way other than the sacrifice of Christ, the cross. Be merciful to me, a sinner. So the Spirit opens the blind eyes of men. It really replaces the mind of the flesh with the mind of the Spirit, Romans 8 tells us. 1 Corinthians 2.16, do you understand that once we are in Christ, once we are a believer, the Bible says that we actually have the mind of Christ? Wrap your head around that. It says in 2.16 of 1 Corinthians, for who has understand the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we, believers, have the mind of Christ. Wow. So that regenerate man appraises all the things that once he could not understand, that he didn't. That's why you see such a change in people who come to Christ. People who wouldn't darken the door of a church. Do anything they can to get to a church. Why? Because they're spiritually hungry. Why? Because God has given them new birth. The regenerate in their heart and soul. I think we've, in a way, kind of done a disservice to a lot of people in the church who, quote, come to Christ. And then we put them in the discipleship class and we teach them everything that they're supposed to say and do. I know when I got saved, I got saved in April Within two weeks, I was being baptized in a little creek in Pennsylvania. There's still snow on the ground. By the end of May, I was in California from Pennsylvania, enrolled in Bible college. I mean, it was either the most irresponsible and stupidest thing I've ever done, or it was God's will. (laughs) Because my family could not figure it out. They thought, are you joining a cult? What are you doing? You're packing up your car. You're, what, if, what is this? They were worried, and rightfully so. But I knew without a doubt this is where God would have me go. And everything changed. You know, I had a desire to be a police officer, to go into the, the armed forces, all that stuff. It all changed. In, in a moment of a second, it changed. And I didn't. Know what God wanted me to do. I didn't say, oh, now God wants me to be a pastor. That was the furthest thing from my mind. The only thing that drove me to go to a Bible college was a thirst to understand this book that for 19 years of my life, steeped in a dedicated religion, altar boy, the whole thing, I had no clue what it said. And so I said, I need to go somewhere where they'll teach me this, not just how to do this. And so God transforms you. He changes you. He removes a sinner's heart of stone, the Bible says, and he implants in him a heart of flesh. And that heart of flesh is capable of perceiving, of understanding, of loving spiritual truth. The affections are also renewed once you come to Christ So the new man hates sin, Matthew 5. Loves righteousness, Matthew 5, 6. Thirst for the God that once he wouldn't have anything to do with. Loves and rejoices in Christ, whom once he thought was foolish. See, when our affections are renewed as a new believer... Our our will is finally freed from the bondage of sin. And we finally have the liberty to enjoy righteousness. That's what salvation is. We now begin to want what God wants. We don't just want what we want. Because the Spirit is at work, both to will and to work for His good pleasure, the Bible says. See, once we were bound in in sin and spiritual death, and now man's mind, man's heart, man's will are now renewed 
onto spiritual life. One commentator says this, Regeneration is as all-pervasive as depravity. While the regenerate individual is not yet as holy as he or she might be. Remember, we go back to the the very beginning of our, our, our messages here when we started this section talking about sanctification. Remember that? We have different stages of sanctification. We have a sanctification that starts when we're saved and God sets us apart. And then we have a kind of a progressive sanctification throughout our Christian life. And then ultimately we have a a perfecting sanctification that happens when we're glorified, when we have our new bodies, glorified bodies in Christ. Right now we're left right here, right now, to deal with the sanctifying process, God making us more like his son each and every day. That doesn't happen on its own, by the way. That's why the Bible indicates that as believers, we should not forsake, in Hebrews it says what? The assembling of ourselves together as some do. Don't do that. Why? Because the church is there to provide this sanctifying process. It helps us in our spiritual walk. Think of it this way. We need to be in church more than the church needs us to be in church. (laughs) Do you understand what I'm saying? See, a lot of times churches think that, well, you know, if if people aren't coming, then, you know, that looks bad on the church. Well, people need to understand their need to be here far outweighs the church's need for them to be here. (laughs) And see, once you understand that, Going on with the quote, while the regenerate individual is not yet as holy as he or she might be, we're in the process of sanctification. There is no part of life which remains uninfluenced by this renewing and cleansing work. It's a complete restoration. Ephesians 4, 24 describes the regenerated sinner a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul describes it this way, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, listen, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. When Paul says that we are dead in our trespasses and sin, it doesn't mean that we're stagnant. It doesn't mean that we're motionless. People who are dead in their trespasses and sin are usually filled with with motions, filled with religious stuff, thinking that somehow that's going to appease God in the end. See, the, the essence of spiritual death is spiritual blindness. They can't. They can't understand, they can't perceive the gospel without God first doing that work in their heart. We see here the means of regeneration. You have the Father, obviously he's the agent, we've talked about that. The Spirit is the cause of regeneration. He's the one that convicts us of our sin. And the word of God itself, specifically the gospel message, is the, you might say, the instrumental cause or the means of regeneration. It's through that gospel message that we're saved. In James 1.18, James says, of his own, the father's own is the idea, will he... uh, uh, he, He has brought us forth by the word of truth. That's how we're saved. We're saved by the word of truth. We're saved by God's word. That's why I tell people when you're sharing your testimony with somebody, interject some verses. Interject some passages of scripture. You don't have to know the address and everything, but interject it. That's where the power lies. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, Peter tells the children of God that they've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. Through the living and abiding word of God. 
And then later on, he says in verse 25, if you're wondering what that is, it says, the good news that was preached to you. That's what he says. So to be clear, the external call of the gospel, when you proclaim the gospel, that is not going to save someone in and of itself. It's not a saving gospel. It's not efficacious as the the theological term. It doesn't provide any effect for anybody unless it's united with the Spirit's work on the internal call, even though it's necessary. You know, you you can go around the world and look in different religions and see how they're trying to figure out a way for for people to be better or to earn grace from God. And we know clearly from the gospel it's not going to happen that way. It happens because God saves us. It comes from hearing the word of God and hearing through the word of Christ, Romans ten seventeen. Well, how does this regeneration result in our faith? What is the relationship between regeneration and faith? Because it sounds like You're just saying God does everything and we don't do anything. No. What I'm saying is is that God has to do something because if he doesn't, anything we do will be ineffective. (laughs) So what happens is when we hear the gospel, God, when he wants to save someone, and it's God who saves us, we don't save ourselves. God saves us, the Bible says. When God saves someone, he gives them spiritual eyes to see the spiritual truth of the gospel. He gives them the eyes to see their lost condition. And he gives them the gifts of faith and belief. And they cry out to him. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. And when that happens, that's when you are born again. It doesn't happen through religious rites or orders or sacraments. But at the same time, you still have to believe. (laughs) So the first thing here, the regenerate believer necessarily... Speaking of the results of regeneration, the regenerated believer necessarily makes a practice of righteousness. We've talked a little bit about this, but if you look at 1 John 2, 29, just in summary, it says, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. How do you know someone's a Christian? Because they're practicing righteousness. That doesn't mean they're completely righteous in their behavior. No one's perfect. It doesn't have to do with perfection. It has to do with direction. That's what our sanctification is all about. Because our sanctification, remember, is progressive. So we're not all we need to be in Christ as we sit here today. We all have baggage. We all have daily sins probably that, that, that frustrate us. We're not perfect. But our desire is to make a practice of righteousness. We want to do the right thing. We want to rely on God's spirit to work through us. To increase our holiness. In 1 John 3, 9, to put it negatively, John says this, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Do you understand that verse is, is giving us the parameters of someone who's saved? They don't make a practice of sinning. In other words, it's not their general lifestyle. It even says he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. There's been a change with new desires. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. His nature has been fundamentally changed from death in sin to life in Christ. Now, we don't completely cease to sin. We're not teaching sinless perfection. That would be heresy. Because the the sin continues to dwell in our sinful flesh. That's why Romans 
Chapter 8 says we have to constantly put it to death. So they don't speak of perfection, but they speak of direction. Are we becoming more like Christ? Secondly, the regenerated life is marked by overcoming the evil influences of the world system. In 1 John 5, 4, John writes this, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Earlier, John comments on the the world and what it's like. It's full of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. All those things are, what, tools of Satan that Satan uses to try to get us off track. And that's whose power, by the way, the whole world lies right now, is Satan's power. I mean, God's ultimately sovereign over everything, but he's yielded that, this world system, to Satan. And yet John declares that the child of God who is born again is able to withstand the pressures, the temptations of this present age. And overcome it through a faith that is gifted to him by God himself. In 1 John 5.18, John writes, He who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So even though we're enticed by sin, all that stuff, we're, we're set aside, as it, as it were, by God. Someone who is born again will never be unborn. <laughs> well, can't you lose your salvation? No, you can't. Well, what if I reject Christ? Well, then you never were his to begin with. It's rather simple. As I said last week, Noah may have fell down in the ark, but he never fell out of the ark. That's a good picture for us. Concerning our salvation. And the third thing here. The child of God experiences not only the love of God that issues in a a lifestyle of willing obedience. But also the love of his fellow believers that issues a life of sacrificial service. So you you notice a, a change. Okay, first of all, they begin to make a practice of righteousness. Then they begin to overcome. They understand, wow, we can overcome these evil desires. I just don't have to sin whenever I need to anymore. The Spirit has given me spiritual life. He's given me the Word of God. He's given me the Spirit within me to to give me the strength to say no. And then thirdly, all of a sudden you have a renewed love, first of God. You want to do what God wants. You don't want to just do what you do. And then secondly, of fellow believers. Of people maybe one time in your life before Christ you thought were weird. Now you look at them as, wow, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to spend more time with them. Yeah, they're still a little weird, but that's okay. So am I. Right? That's why John writes in 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Sometimes I talk to people on the phone, usually, because they don't darken the door of a church. And they'll call the office. And I'll say, well, where do you fellowship? Well, I don't go to church. You don't go to church? Are you physically ill or something? No, no. I just don't, I don't like church. Or are you a believer? Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm thinking a big red flag, right? And I use this verse. I say, look. The Bible says that we should love one another. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You don't sound like you got a lot of love in your heart. Well, it's full of hypocrites. Yeah, whatever. Come on, we can use another one. I mean, you know, I mean, there's no perfect churches. We're just sinners saved by God's grace, set apart for his good favor. But you have a love for that that kind of a fellowship. And then he shares here in verse 3, and we'll close with this. He says, grace to you. This is really a greeting that he uses continuously in all of his 
his epistles, grace to you, unmerited favor, the favor of, of God be upon you. And he says, this is a result of your salvation. See, it's very important you understand why Paul talked in the first three verses about him being called by the will of God, and then Sophonis being called by the will of God, and then the Corinthians being called by the will of God. See, because he starts off and he says, look, if someone like me can get saved, you people in Corinth who just have a really wicked, wicked, wicked city, no problem for God to save you. And I'm reminded of that because we live in probably one of the the most vilest, wicked areas of our country, the San Francisco Bay Area. And you think, man, why would God have me pastor a church here? It's so frustrating. It's so expensive for people to live. They come for a while. They leave. It's just, but you know what? Somebody's got to do it. Because people need to get saved. People need to hear the glorious gospel of Christ. And if you go around and you, you, you visit other churches, you know, I'm not saying they're all bad, but I'm just saying, boy, some of them are lacking in telling people the truth about the gospel of Christ. And we need to do our due diligence right here. And so he says, you know what? Grace be upon you. That's what salvation is. It's God's grace. And then notice he, he the next word there is peace and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the fruit of grace. If you're here this morning, you're troubled in your spirit. Maybe you have issues in your life that probably none of us maybe could understand or comprehend. God does. God can. But what you need to understand is for you to understand and and grasp the peace of God, you need to first understand the grace of God. You first need to understand your need of God's grace in your life. And once God saves you, the Bible says that he gives you this kind of peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding and comprehension. We can't even understand it. I know several of you are going through major issues right now in your life. And you know what? As I observe you, yeah, there's a little tension there, but for the most part, you're riding kind of on a wave of peace. You're kind of saying, you know what? Yeah, this is tough, but God's going to work this out. There's a peace. Down deep in your soul, that comes from the grace of God that he's gifted to you. In this salvation, beloved, the way that we're called all this is not just for our church, because he says there right in the middle of verse 2, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. So it's, it's not just you know, a certain segment of the body of Christ, well, this is good for them. No, this truth applies to the, the church universal. And if, if the gospel you're hearing is not that gospel, then it's a false gospel. And it needs to be turned away from. So I pray this morning that your hearts have been filled with thankfulness that God would save such as we are by his grace that he has gifted us salvation. There would be no way we would ever come to Christ on our own. But he has allowed that to happen. And for that, we are eternally thankful. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we do pray that as we just close our our time here, uh, if there's anyone here this morning who has cause for question in their own heart about their salvation, I pray, Lord, that you would Reach down as only you can. And Lord, take the words that they've heard this morning and apply them directly to their heart, their life. I pray that you would grant to them new life in Christ. That Lord, maybe for the first time, the, the, the light goes on and they're able to see their own sinfulness before a holy God and they're able to cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, save me. Help me not to trust in my religious or, or attending church or being baptized or anything like that. It's not by works of the flesh that we're saved, but it's a divine work of your Holy Spirit in the life of the unbeliever. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would do that work in their hearts. And as believers, Lord, as we leave this place and we witness to people, Father, I pray that we would be faithful to be compassionate, to be kind, to be gracious, 
not to just expect them to change their life and, and, and desire spiritual things when they're lost and dead and there's trespasses and sin. But Lord, that we would be um, just compassionate toward them and patient with your process of drawing them to yourself. Pray that you would use us in that process as we give to them the word of truth, the gospel, and your word. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.